I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, obviously, I like to think of myself as a fairly intrepid in my scope for guests on books to live by. But today, I'm just trotting across a field next door to my house in Somerset because it's here next door to an old post office that one of the greatest photographers of the last century lives. Sir Don McCullen has covered conflict and tragedy across the decades, from Vietnam to Syria, Northern Ireland to Uganda, Biafra to Bosnia, forcing our eyes to address the worst man-made atrocities. His work has earned him a knighthood and a major retrospective at the Tate, which was marked by unprecedented numbers of visitors of all generations. He remains vigorous, committed to his work and hard to dissuade from packing up his kit every time a situation arises that attracts his attention. Well, what better guest to discuss the books that have shaped his life and thinking. Front door, but this one's open. So I thought, knock knock. I'm sorry you've had a job finding me. <laughs> Stumble across the fields. We this, should. Should we sit in the corner here, or should we sit? We could go into this other room in here. This is very quiet. Is inside better than outside? Outside. Oh, outside. Right you get the old tractor Thank you very much for inviting us to come and, and talk about the books that have in some way sort of shaped your thinking and and your life. I, I thought that we would start perhaps with the book that you say made you dream, uh, which is Robinson Crusoe. But before we talk about Robinson Crusoe, you were quite a late starter to reading altogether, weren't you? Yeah, because uh, I grew up in North London in a place called Finsbury Park in two damp rooms below the ground level with my invalid father and my very strong mother uh, who used to smoke all the time but there was never one book in the house all those years I lived in that house there was never one book in that house a book would have been considered you know beyond luxury and beyond necessity and you were also um dyslexic or you are dyslexic no I'm so dyslexic I don't know how I've managed to um, you know, get through any books I've read. I have to keep doubling back and, you know, I can justifiably read a book twice and then I come out of it with a, a twinge of knowledge of what I've read and it seems slightly insulting to the author. But, you know, I've found just lately I cannot go to bed at night without a book. It, it's like going to bed with a kind of companion a book. It's I, 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 I don't mean to confuse the issue here, but, you know, if I go to bed without a book, I can't sleep. And there's nothing nicer than... I go to bed very early, by the way, at my age, and I go to bed, if I can get away with it, my wife Catherine's not here, um, I go to bed at 8.30. And the tragedy is that you can only read, you know, if you're lucky, a dozen pages, and you're gone, you know. But it's a very nice way to, you know, to go into sleep. So do you remember what the first book you read was? It wasn't Robinson Crusoe, I presume. 
It was. Um, when I was a boy, I, I found a very colourful version, a very thick, it's like a boy's own annual. I don't know where I found this, but I came across it. And there was a picture of a man who'd been shipwrecked on a desert island. Of course, I've researched the kind of, the writer, um, Daniel Defoe, who, who, who wasn't a, a brilliant scholar himself when he was young. And, and he, many of the books he wrote didn't actually come to great fame. You know, the, the, the Robinson Crusoe book really inspired me because it gave me a, a, a dream-like kind of reason to escape from a terrible place like Finsbury Park where I grew up. So did it seem incredibly exotic, these drawings and this hirsute man cast out of What was bizarre about it was, um, of course, the, um, the story starts in, in Hull, of all places. It, it was so a city of, um, of, of a culture a few years ago. <laughs> I've never, never understood that. But anyway, he starts off in Hull and he comes down the North Sea into a blinding storm and then he gets nearly shipwrecked and he thinks never again, never again. But he goes to London and gets on another ship and, and winds up in this tropical island. We don't quite know where it is. He mentions Guinea off of the coast of Gold Coast of Africa. So what was it about the book that that, that, that that struck you then? Because you were you were in, still in North London. Yeah. I, I presume no dream of travel abroad or anything, really, just not even sure what you were going to do with your life at that point. Well, the only thing that we remembered when I grew up as a boy in North London, when the war ended, was getting a handful of bananas, which Robinson Crusoe would have been very, very happy to live on. But what it did for me, it, it brought a kind of daring a color you know being inspired by leaving all i want to do is escape from there i i thought what i'm going to do is i'm going to go and get on a merchant ship and go to america and i'm going to jump ship and i'm going to you know be an illegal immigrant but it didn't turn out that all i did i wound up going to houston station getting a job on the lms steam train which took me i worked in the pantry washing up the dishes for very reasonable lunches and, and suppers and uh, I'd arrive in Liverpool and walk the streets of Liverpool at the age of 15. So that book, in a way, it, it invigorated my, my thinking enough to, you know, say, I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to do something. You know, I've spent the last 70 years of my life doing that. And, and combined with the fact that in 1940, I was evacuated down here in Somerset. So I, I, then I was sent from Somerset up to Lancashire. I, I've I've been disturbed by... Uh, you know, I can't sit down. I have to be on the move. So one book can inspire you to say, I am going to do, and you do it. And going back to my dyslexia, which made, has made my reading very difficult, is this, that I actually failed my trade test in the Royal Air Force because I couldn't read the theory paper to pass my test as a photographer. So I came out of the Air Force as a failed photographer. So what made you actually want to pursue reading when it was such a difficult thing and 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 so challenging did it did it in some way represent a kind of a world that you could escape to that 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 could take you anywhere without you having to go anywhere well what i did was i i started reading newspapers because I, by, by the age of 23 I, I i got i got into the newspaper business purely by accident and i started reading newspapers to see what was going on in the world and i couldn't i, I never missed a news bulletin on television because i that that was telling me you know where to you know to look for the next assignment so um and then it wasn't till later years that i started picking up books and reading them. But they were always the wrong books. I was always reading about prisoner of war camps, which immediately confined me and, 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 and kind of trapped me. And I said, I don't want to be trapped again. I've just got out of Finsbury Park. So I was 
really looking for a, a, a way out. And I thought the newspapers, I could read them very quickly. And I didn't have to, um, you know, think about it, just throw them away. It's interesting you say, you know, you were reading books that trapped you because um, one of your choices, and, and there are books that, 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 that may make a reader feel trapped in your list, mm. but but the book that you say taught you endurance was, uh, well, it's actually two books for cheating and letting you have the both of them, uh, The White and Blue Nile by Alan Moorhead. Yes. And they're definitely the opposite of that, aren't they? They're a, another form of, 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 you know, travel of the mind, if not the body. Well, they were travel when travel was real and it was difficult and it was hard and they were travels of endurance. And I, 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 I welcome the idea of travel with endurance, but today we go to London Airport and get on an aeroplane and we're there the next morning. These people spent like two or three years you know, particularly the, uh, you know, the people looking for the source of the Nile. There was even a man called Baker and his wife. I mean, his wife. I mean, being in the tropics where you died like flies within three months, there were no mosquito nets, there were no malaria tablets. These people foraged through. I mean, they weren't particularly nice people. For instance, Henry Morton Stanley, who helped to Leopold to, you know, to, to gather and create the appalling Belgium Congo, you know, he was a brutish man who shot people just to impress tribal chiefs because he had the magic stick, which they thought was, you know, but we had known it as the gun. He would use it and shoot somebody just to demonstrate his power. But, I mean, that those men journeyed with terrible illnesses, terrible feet problems, terrible, um, you know, malaria, and, and they were carried on litters not knowing what day it was. I mean, you know, I've suffered from malaria and I've been to those places... So in a way, reading the Moorhead books, The Blue and the White Nile, they fulfilled my desire for exploration because I've been to almost every country in Africa, apart from in this world as well. But I, I, I've been inspired by travel. I'm not anymore. I'm tired of airports. I'm tired of being searched and my cameras, you know, pulled out and tested for explosives or whatever. And in a way, the... The dream of travel for me is now somewhat, it's slightly sour. So people will think of you as a, as a war photographer primarily, but do you think that you're more of an explorer, really? And whether it's into the human psyche or, you know, across India, that, that in a way what you're looking for is, is, is something very similar? Um, I think all people who travel are looking not only for what they're going to find, but I think they're looking for something in their inner self. They're saying, can I do this? Will I get there? What will I get from it? There is a, a, a psychoanalysis procedure going on in, in your journey of exploration. You never know. And, and if I was a travel writer, uh, you know, I mean, really a serious travel writer, it's always the unexpected. Uh, if you go somewhere and nothing goes wrong, you've got nothing to write about, you know. But as a photographer, you know, I go with preconceived ideas. You know, I go to Africa, I go to Egypt, and I, every time I've been to these places, and even what I'm talking about today, there's been a, a personal uh, thing that I've got out of it, and it hasn't always been desirable. I go there for photographs. I came back from one of these islands many years ago with cerebral malaria and wound up in the Tropical Disease Hospital. So there is an affinity. When I read the Moorhead books about Africa, you know, uh, and I talk about other people's malaria, when I came back to London from my... I was at a, a drinks party one night and, and semi-collapsed in this, 
You were two or three weeks later when you knew you've got malaria. You were really ill and sick and vile, and um, and then you wake up in the tropical disease hospital in London, and it's the food that cures you there, not the pills. <laughs> so you can't <laughs> wait to get out. But I mean, it's it's all about reading and. You know, I've never really been seriously tempted to put pen to paper because I've got some amazing stories. I know. Why have <laughs> you not been tempted to put pen to paper? Um, do you know, going back to my dyslexia, it's to do with lack of confidence. And I don't want to be embarrassed about, you know, I am a photographer. There's nothing worse than a writer who thinks he's a great photographer because he's not. And I actually really know where my place is, even though... Years ago when I was a boy, people used to say that to me. It was always the thing I rejected. He said, you should know your place. Well, I, you know, I'm always angry about that. But I, I do know my place when it comes to my limited talent. I am a photographer. Do you think that's true? First of all, I reject, obviously, uh, limited talent, and so would anyone who's seen your work. But, but do you think it is to do with knowing uh, your place or, uh, you know, and, and, and accepting that that is your skill? Or do you think that it's partly as well, you know, you found something that you really excel at? Anything else would put you in a vulnerable position to be judged in a way that I don't think you'd enjoy, maybe. Uh, do you know something, Mariella? It took me years to get rid of a huge inferiority complex. It used to sit on my shoulder like a parrot, and it's gone now. And I know it's gone because I, I, I don't hear the sound anymore. The parrot's gone. And, you know, you grew up in a country like England. You knew there was a class structure, and, and you, you, you were stuck in this shameful place. And I've got out of that now. There's still some of it lingering around, I have to say. Um, it's only a personal... Uh, but, I mean, you, you know, I, th we're talking about books here, and books are meant to educate you. And you can read all the books in the world if you live in England. You can still have this uncertainty about, um, have I learned from what I've read? Has, has any of it done me any good? And, and it's taken me years to, to think... Um, some of the things I've read. And I'm, all I'm interested in now, and it's all rather too late, I'm interested in culture. Ignorance is the food I was weaned on. And it took me years to get rid of it. And when I read a book now, I go to bed, and, it, and it, it's like being in bed with Miss World. I mean, <laughs> I am so thrilled for those moments to be able to read before I fall asleep. I wonder how Max Hastings, for example, would feel about um, representing Miss World for you when you go to bed with his Vietnam book, which uh, you've chosen as the book that takes you back. And of course, you spent as much time as, as Hastings did uh, covering that war. I think I spent a lot more time than him. I went there when the war uh, kicked off in 1965 and I, I, was, I was arrived at the airport in 1975, having come, came from the fall of Phnom Penh. I was told by Harold Evans, the editor of the Sunday Times, to uh, proceed to the fall of Saigon. And I arrived at the airport and um, John Peel just said to me, would you mind letting me check in first because I think you're on the blacklist here. And another man called Martin Woolacott from The Guardian said, I know he's on the blacklist, I've seen it. Um, uh, so Pilger went through and then I went through the passport control and they took my passport away and, and they, a, a whole bunch of white policemen, when I say white policemen, they were called the white mice. They were all very small and wore white uniforms. They were always milling around. And, um, but not benign, me, I imagine. They jumped on me at the airport and dragged me into a room and there was a huge scuffle 
and I knocked the telephone off the desk and smashed it, and there was a mayhem in this room. They were saying, you are a very bad man, you are expelled, you are not coming here. So unceremoniously, I looked out of the window, and unceremoniously, there was um, the editor from the Daily Mail who had chartered an aeroplane to bring back um, uh, about 80 orphans, and, and he chartered this plane to bring them to London, uh, there was one of the reporters, Philip Jacobson, who I saw, and I screamed out the window, get me on that plane. And I was dragged out of the room, and I flew back with 80 orphans from Vietnam. I didn't see the end of the war. So the the Vietnam War, which I could have sat down with Max Hastings and helped him write that book, um, and I know Max very well. He's the most prolific man I've ever known. I said to him once, do you ever go to sleep at night? He churns out one book after the other, churns them out. And they're incredibly accurate, and they're very well. They're very well, um, you know, researched. I mean, one of the things that 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 his book focuses on, I suppose, is is something that you've talked about in the past, which is the sort of not just the futility of war, but the cynicism invested in in those who start wars and prolong them. And you know, in this book, he makes it very clear that you know Kissinger and Nixon, in particular dragged that war on long after mm. they knew mm. that it couldn't be won. Mm. And, you know, of course, that cost hundreds of thousands of, of young men and indeed some women their, their lives. Mm. At what point was that something that struck you about the wars that you were covering? All the wars I've covering have been futile. They've all cost human lives. And the tragedy of war can never really be replaced you can never really place the damage it's done in human terms. The Vietnam War, I can tell you now, is nearly 55,000 American soldiers killed, some of whom I saw killed next to me in the great battle of Hue in the Tet Offensive, 1968. I got a letter the other day from a man who I carried away from the battlefield on my shoulders, and he said he got to Guam, where all the B-52 bombers used to take off and bomb Vietnam. They had a, a hospital for Marine soldiers and and he said he wrote his letter, he wrote a letter to his mother telling him about this Englishman who carried him away from the war and he couldn't figure out who the hell I was. And he sent me a copy of the letter that he sent to his mother 50 years ago. And so uh, there was also 300,000 men wounded in the Vietnam War and a million Vietnamese. There is no justification on this earth why such a war and of course, it was it was the tail end of the Cold War, really. You can't really express any words to even fathom out the insanity of the whole thing. The thing about Max's book, coming back to Max, is that he politically got the whole all the players in the right place. You know, somebody likes Max Hastings, he won't. Um, he never approaches anything without the diligence that he will. You know, go to the last kind of. A minute of the second of the day to make sure what he's doing it is remarkable. I presume that when you first started covering wars, you went into it with the zest and, you know, belief that young people have that the world will change, that everything will be different, that, you know... You're talking about naivety here, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe. I've got to be really honest. I was young and energetic, and I was, and when I discovered photography, or I think it discovered me, because I didn't set out to be a photographer, I went into the Observer one day, and they said, "How would you consider going to the war in Cyprus?" 
Civil War in 1964, well, I was stationed in Cyprus for the last six months of my military service in the Air Force. And I was stationed right next to a, th a place called the Temple of Apollo, just outside the city of Limassol. And would you believe, like years and years later, I did a book about the Roman cities of Africa and the Middle East. I, I keep thinking that I've been traveling a journey of coincidence. You know, I went to the Berlin Wall and I went to Africa. I went to the Congo and, and you know, I did read a book called Leopold's Ghost Once, which was a riveting book. And so I, I'm aware of the journeys. I've been, I've been paralleling my journeys, but I didn't expect this when I started as a young man, as you pointed out. But I was ambitious. And my ambition blinded me to what I was doing. All I was thinking about was seeing my name under war pictures and it was all a bit Hollywood and a bit flash. It, it was disgusting, really, looking back. I was experiencing excitement. I thought it was fun. I thought, you know, flying in helicopters. You're bound to be tainted by the wrong attitude. And then when I saw people being executed in front of me and crying in front of me, thinking I can save them, and seeing hundreds of dying, starving children, I knew that I'd been making you know, the wrong assessment of what I was up to. And did it change then? Did did your, maybe not your ambition change, but your what was driving you? When, when that changed, do you think that changed your work? Well, I think I had a kind of, it was like having a cataract operation. I could see clearly. I, instead of diving into the North Sea, I was diving in into the Indian Ocean. I could see all the life and the reality. And I, I realized I'd got it wrong. And then I started really... It wasn't as much as a crusade, but I started saying, you've got to see this, forget those soldiers, you know, look at those civilians, because they're the people at the end of the day who pay the real price of war. So I, I started, you know, seeing clearly and going in, doing a U-turn. You know, I had to come back from those wars, come back to a country that had food, had peace. I was in no danger when I came back here, but then I felt a totally alien to my own society. Which is interesting in terms of the, the sort of gear change, if you will, between, um, you know, a book like Vietnam by, by Max Hastings, which, you know, talks about the machinations of that war and how it happened and who the big players were and why it happened. And then um, another book that you've chosen, which is Is This a Man mm -hmm. by Primo Levi, which mm. you describe as the, the book that opened your mind. And I suppose that in a way that reflects exactly the thing you're talking about that happened with you about your work. You know, at one point you were driven by the the machismo of it and the excitement and the, mm. and and then you turned yourself toward the victims of those wars more. Well, I read the books many years ago, and then I forgot it because with a dyslexia like me, you do forget. But then I read it again a couple of weeks ago. And what it, what it taught me, it, was, it taught me the kind of crime of persecution. It wasn't just the Jews that suffered in Auschwitz and these other appalling camps. So there were 50 or 60 of these camps distributed in Europe. It, it was also political prisoners, people who were gay, wore pink um, signs. And, but I read... with. Primo Levi, what I, I learned about dignity, really. This man had such dignity. He wasn't so in a hurry at the end of it all to start saying, you know, terrible things which should, which should have been done to the people who did it. He, he had none of that animosity. He, I, I would have been eaten up with animosity and, and hatred and, you know, <laughs> I would have been terrible. There is a man who, uh, 
he came away from all that, and he was only about 23 at the time. When I was 23, I started my photographic life. And, you know, and, and I keep reflecting, could I have survived the camp? Could I have not been beaten the way he was beaten one day? Could I have done this? Could I have done that? And could I have lived on that, you know, that much bread for a whole day and night and, and slept next to a man who was dead um, in a bunk? And could I have, I keep saying, could I, could I, could I? And then uh, I, I could parallel it by, by being in Uganda many years ago, um, when Idi Amin went mad, there was an and there was an invasion from Tanzania with a man called Milton Aboti, and he, he he came in to take over. Idi went mad. I was arrested at the airport and taken to the military camp where they were murdering men with sledgehammers. They would take twenty men, lie them down on the floor, and smash their skull with a huge sled. And then in the morning, their bodies would go to the Nile to feed the crocodiles. And I and then at night. You were uh, in the same prison as this was it's happening. It's called McKinley Prison. It's a military prison, notorious. And in the night, they came and they beat a man to death in, in, in our cell, smashed his jaw, broke his leg. And it was this, we had to listen to the beating and the screaming. And then in the morning, they took this man away, you know, finished him off outside. In the morning, two men came and they had a hand each on a dustbin, which was full of tea, and both of their eyes were closed. And they'd had a terrible beating. We got a terrible beating when we went into the prison. They they uh, they came rushing with big canes, kicking and thrashing us and punching us. And, and I thought, my God, you know, we're not going to get out of this. And what did you think about that? What did you think? Because that's probably the closest you've come to thinking, I'm a goner. I think so. Because even on the battlefield, you have a choice, you can run. There was no choice. And one of the things I disliked about myself was... My fear, I, I thought, come on, you can do better than this. But I was really afraid. I thought, I'm not going to get out of this. And I thought the idea of not being able to fight back or to be able to defend myself. And in the cell, I, the cell I slept on, all the walls were covered with blood. The mattresses were covered in blood and, and urine. And, and I thought, you're not going to get out of it. They're not going to let you see all this and let you go. And I spent four days in that prison. And my heart never stopped racing. I never slept a wink. Isn't that um, one of the things that Levy talks about in his book, though, is that when you're reduced, which you've seen so many times, you've mm-hmm. seen human beings reduced to the, the barest minimum that it takes to stay alive, mm-hmm. you know, a, a child in tatters with an empty corned beef can, mm-hmm. you know, you've seen it over and over again. And, and what Levy talks about is, you know, is this a man? How do you... How do you feel about that? You know, do you feel that 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 we are, you know, you, you, you've seen the worst. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we're also capable, as Levy was, of enormous dignity, that you see the spark of light in people that that in those situations manage to survive it or manage at least to to exist with some dignity in in the most undignified circumstances. I do, actually. And may I just say this, that when I'm reading that book upstairs in this house, this house is already tainted with ghosts anyway, because I have 60,000 negatives of my warring. They're all here in this house. And when I go to bed at night, I think they're having a merry dance, this history I've got in these negatives. And I actually did a book once called Sleeping With Ghosts. But when I'm reading Levy... I'm becoming him. And I think, why am I reading 
this book in my bed when I'm supposed to be enjoying reading and enjoying this journey into this book. But, you know, in wars, I've seen amazing things. I've seen terrible, wicked things you'd never believe. And I've seen men cradling men crying. I've seen men tendering children, soldiers carrying children away from battlefronts. Once I said that war, you will see beauty in war. There's no doubt about it. I, I'm an expert on war. I, I'm, it's, I'm embarrassed to say this, that I have seen the most beautiful, touching things in war. And, you know, you have to have it to be able to make some assessment. And in the end, you can adjust, but it's not easy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Maybe what you've always been looking for and the reason you felt dissatisfied because mm. your work didn't achieve what you wanted in the moment, yeah. which was things to change, yeah, they... wars to stop, you know, uh, famines to end, you know. But maybe the the legacy and what you what you will change is how people approach those things in the future. Because, you know, I went to a mm. talk of yours the other day and, and half the people in the room were under 25. You know, I was really yeah. quite surprised, you yeah. know. I thought it'd be all old fogies like you and me. Well, the problem is, you see, that with wars, there's profit to be made in wars. There's profit in personality like, you know, politicians and the profit comes from you know in the vietnam war for instance the man who made the tin opener that opened your tin of sea rations that's the army name for the tin of sea rations that came in these kind of green tins the man who made the man who put the five lucky strike cigarettes in that box of rations you got they all became millionaires you know there is profit in war and profit in personality of war and there are losers of course as we well know and it, it's not the people who make a million bucks it's the losers who you know sacrifice their lives so and does the presence of of young people and their interest in your work and their interest in in you know seeing things that that have happened in the past and perhaps that framing their future does that make you because the prima levy book is is in some ways even though it's recording the worst of mankind he spent mm-hmm. a year in auschwitz mm-hmm. between 44 and, and 45 1944 and 1945 although it's recording the worst of man it's also celebrating the best and and you've sort of said there is there is beauty in in battle do you think that there's a sense that you can also inspire uh, other generations to behave differently do you feel that at all um i've had a tricky role to play in my life because people often say do you help anybody well first of all i'm not qualified to to help in a physical medical sense you know i can't go there with a big first aid pack on my back i'm there for another reason um i'm basically a kind of carrier pigeon on the other hand i'm a carrier pigeon with a soul i i go there and i'm deliberately looking for the crime and that's uncomfortable for me you know i don't want to be some ghoul i don't want to be the grim reaper that that could be you know 
uh, I could be affiliated to that image. And so I, I'm very careful and very, very concerned that I don't come away with the wrong credentials. I, I go there purely... And uh, the only way I go there with, without trying to burden myself with guilt is the fact I risk my life. And I did get injured a couple of times, but not seriously, and I'm still here to this day. And um, I, I just... I've been I've been walking a very fine tightrope, you know, and and I, I didn't want to fall off that. And I could really be attacked left, right, and centre. But I've tried to keep my head down and do my work. And you know, I've offered my life to take these pictures. And you know, and um, I don't think a negative's worth a human life. So when I was doing this work, I used to use an exposure meter. So I'd pop up, take the light reading, pop down, and pop up and take the picture, and. You know, I was in a battle one day where any man who moved was getting hit with a bullet. And I thought, why not me? Because there was a sniper in Vietnam killing all these men around me. They, he killed two men around me, close to me. And I thought maybe he'd seen my cameras and thought, this man's not carrying a gun, you know. I was going through all this psychology. And, you know, I go to bed every night here and I never stopped thinking about that final big battle I was in. I mean, in Hui. In Hui. But why, I've been why, in. Why that one? Because um, there were 70 men killed in this battalion I was with, and, and another couple of hundred wounded. They got wiped out, really. Have you ever, because, you know, we live in very prescriptive times now, and, and, and also, you know, everyone's looking for therapy to get over trauma of some sort or another well I don't think there's anyone I've ever met who's gone through as much trauma as you on 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 so many different levels from your own childhood from your experiences during the war to your experiences covering wars um have you ever read uh you know a sort of therapeutic self-help book have you ever tried to tackle those uh, sort of demons that that you talk about quite openly i should have known that one was coming the answer is no um I, i've always i've cured myself in a way living where i've chosen to live here in somerset and i was evacuated here as a five-year-old boy this has cured me where i live the landscape I've had lots of personal family tragedies, which is not worth going into. But this is where I have cured myself here. And I hate going to London. London could bring it all back to me. London is like a war to me. It's like a foreign country. Really? Yeah. Why? If I get on the train in the morning, I can't wait to get on the train in the afternoon, the first one back. I cannot be in London. And there I was born and bred in London, in the Middlesex Hospital. We've talked a lot about immersion in your world and what you've experienced and what you've done, um, and not so much about escaping it, although Somerset, of course, represents for you some form of escape. I know that you've loved the Berlin Noir series by Uh the sadly late Philip Kerr, and yet... You know, I mean, they are, they're crime novels and Bernie Gunter's a detective, but it is the Weimar Republic, isn't it? And it's the rise of Hitler. And, you know, they they bring in all the grit of that that period of turbulence. They bring the the, the violence and the grit. I mean, all he talks about is Bernie Gunther, who was the um, ex-policeman from the Alex, it was called, it was... um, it was, I think it was Alexandra Platz is where the, the, one of the big um, police head officers and people were taken in there and they weren't treated particularly kindly. 
And you, you could imagine what went on in a place like that. But I mean, the trouble is with the curb books is there's a lot of sexual innuendos that it was about he's always talking about ladies stockings and ladies bosoms and things like that and ladies this and that well you're not getting all prurient on me are you no well i'm i'm <laughs> just saying that there was it was obviously written in a way a bit of american philip marlowe there i mean he's leaned upon that kind of that kind of taste of writing but do you like these books because they offer escape or because they they have a that they present a realistic portrait of the time i suspect it's likely because they offer escape like all crime novels you know things get solved don't they well, unlike I, life i would have i thought i read the books because i wish i would have been in berlin in the weimar republic period I, I, you know, I when I went back to Berlin, I, there was a Sunday. Uh, there was an observer writer who I had to team up with, and he said to me, "Come on, let's go and see a bit of what's you know Berlin's got to offer." And we wound up in a a bar which had a huge circus ring, and there were women riding around on this white horse, semi naked. And he and you know we got thrown out of this bar because he said I used to ride, and then and I said oh no and we got totally smashed and we were kicked <laughs> out of this bar. But Berlin would have offered you, and it comes across in the book every form of of entertainment, shall we call it, <laughs> that you could have been looking for. Everything was there for you. It, it struck me as being the most exciting place in the world to be Berlin in in the thirties. Of course, until our friend Mister. Adolf came along. If it hadn't been for Hitler, it would probably be today the, the, the centre of the cultural universe. It had all the great people living there, all the greatest cultural city in the world. It's interesting that you, you, you mentioned there that, that you were there having a drink with a, a colleague, and I think that that whole camaraderie that goes along with both uh, reportage and, and, and conflict photography and journalism, yeah. but also travel has been something that's been quite important to you, uh, you know, through the years. And one of your steadfast traveling companions, of course, was, was the late Mark Shand, who was one of your best friends. Yes. And you've chosen his book as, as a, a traveling companion. Well, only because I joined him on the last hundred miles of that journey with the elephant. It's called um, Travels with My Elephant. Yeah, I was going through a particularly bad personal time in my life and I was very, very unhappy and miserable. And Mark said, I'll meet you on the 14th of November, which is, is quite accurate, in Bodhgaya. And Bodhgaya is a place where a Buddha was enlightened. He sat under the Bodhi tree. And I've seen the Bodhi tree. They claim it's still there, but, I mean, it's not very big. Um, <laughs> so... Sure enough, I wound up in India, jet-legged out of my brains. I got onto a train with all my suitcase and cameras, and I sat there with a thousand eyes looking at me in this this railway train going down to Bodhgaya. And I arrived, and I waited in a hotel for two or three days, and I was really depressed, and I thought, oh, he's not going to, we're not going to. And I came out of a money-changing place, and I heard someone say, what's your mate? And I looked round, and I looked up, and there was Shan sitting on this elephant who, who he'd named Tara, which means star. And so I was part of this crazy project. He bought this elephant and marched it a thousand kilometers across India to this great Indian festival of elephants. And there were 120 elephants tethered under mango trees and a million people. And I thought, this is the photographer's dream. I mean, you couldn't imagine. It was so medieval and so extraordinary. 
So that's why I chose this book. And of course, the book in a way was a slightly frivolous in a way. Well, I was going to say, you mentioned the, the sort of um, suggestiveness of, of the Bernie Gunter novels, you know, when it comes to women and everything. Uh-huh. And, and of course, in Travels with My Elephant, Mark Shand describes not only India as an alluring, mysterious, sexy woman, but also when he's looking for his elephant, it's all about the charms of her perfectly rounded posterior and things <laughs> like that. Um, does that remind you with fondness about your friend? But does, is there also, um, in some way, a feeling that, that, you know, all of that stuff was fine once and now becomes, you know, is now viewed much more sceptically and critically in a different society. Do you feel that the world's kind of gone in a strange well, way? Well, I think, A, let's give him huge credit. He didn't have a television organisation behind it, like most of the television travellers you see now. You know, a lot of it is guff. You know, they, they, they you think they're travelling and they're struggling, but you know there's a van following them with beers and, and kind of cooling kind of drinks and thing. And, you know, they, you know, they never had to do their own bookings. And, you know, but the old Mark went out there and bought an elephant. I don't know how much he paid for it, really, but he bought an elephant and he did it. India is a chaotic enough place anyway to buy an elephant. Of course, he had a mahout um, and, a, and a team of guys, but they weren't like, you know, a production company. They didn't know how to organise this or that. They, they got bales of food for the elephant to eat. But then at the end of it, we wound up and we cordoned off this area amongst this million people on this river. It wasn't the Ganges, it was the Gandak. But at dawn in the morning, the elephants would go into the river and they would be scrubbed with pumice stones. And elephants like nothing nicer than being in water anyway, being scrubbed with a pumice stone on areas they can't reach. Fancy that yourself? Pardon? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I took the most... Well, I mustn't say this really, but I took really lovely pictures, pleasing. But I was so thrilled to take these pictures. And I was also photographing the people who came because elephants are very revered and worshipped in India, like the monkey. I was taking pictures that I thought were like a 100 years old. They were going back to the almost the turn of the century uh, when photography was discovered. And so the journey was enormously rewarding for me. But it was quite comical to see how the people stood docile watching Mark in the morning getting all the elephant ready to move on for the next 25 miles of the journey and the next day. I mean, as he went along, cars passed and hooted and people offered fruit to the elephant. And I, it, Mark said, try riding the elephant. And I got on the elephant and I felt seasick and um, I almost fell off asleep and killed <laughs> myself. But, I mean, Mark was... There aren't people like him around anymore. There aren't those kind of travellers... Who can do that without the backup? It was it was just an extraordinary experience. And then he said to me, I can't write this book, mate. I said, For God's sake, don't be a fool. Only you can write it. You created this situation. Only you can write it. So he went off to India thinking that would inspire him and sat on the beach and tried to do it there. Of course it didn't work. He rang me every day saying, I can't do it. I said, For God's sake, come home and sit down and do it. It's your story, and eventually did. And lo and behold, he won Travel Writer of the Year. You know, to have your own elephant, you know, (laughs) and drive it right the way half across India. You've almost home and drive before you started the story, really.
I wondered, you know, having witnessed so much death in your time, what the impact is of having seen death on such an epic scale when it happens personally. Does it minimize it? Do you take death lightly or does it traumatize you more than it might do had you not seen so much of it? It doesn't traumatize me. Of late, I've lost several of my colleagues from the Sunday Times, people, many of whom helped me in my work. You know, the, one of the art, uh, uh, one of the art directors died, and he was an amazing man himself. He he left the Sunday Times and went off and and collected a million pictures of the Russian Revolution, post and pre-Russian Revolution, which is now in Tate Modern. I've lost several of my really close friends I travelled and worked with. You know, writers are very interesting people. They always had more education because I had none at all. So. They became my tutors, really. I, I tried to pick up from them on our journeys. I listened. You know, one of the great writers of our time or of previous time was Norman Lewis. And he was a 30-year-old friend of mine. And he and I travelled to the Brazilian jungles and Paraguay and places and met President Strozner, the old war criminal. Uh, all kinds of people like that, you know. I should be the most educated man in the world. But, you know, there's a part of my brain that won't retain the written word, and, and a lot of other factual things I've, I've absorbed. And why is it I can see so clearly and, and have 10,000 images that I can recall from not only my own work but other people's? So coming back to your question, when some of my colleagues die and they're about 80, I think, well, okay, you know, not a bad innings. But when my first wife died on my son's wedding day, it was a colossal thing I had to bring all my strength to say, what are we going to do? Because my son said, what are we going to do? And I said, it's your wedding. And he said, all these people have come from all over the world. I said, well, you... And he said, we'll do it. So we had a wedding. So how can you imagine that day was me doing... I photographed my son's wedding, because I'm a photographer. And we saw his wife's mother's body being taken away by the morticians. That was one of the toughest days of my life, and it compared with any day I spent on a battlefield in a war zone. You're surrounded now by, in this book-filled room, uh, accounts of your travels, accounts of places you've been, books of photographs. Um, do you see yourself, you know, now settling into travelling through the page rather than on a plane? Or are there still journeys you want no, to make? No, I'm still I'm planning to go away with my wife, Catherine. We're going off to a holiday this week, which I think is long overdue because I'm getting quite fragile now. I hate carrying camera bags through airports. I get persecuted by that, those security people. And then the thing I'm looking forward to most this year is that we're going on an icebreaker in the Arctic. And I've longed to do ar ar Arctic landscape. So I'm going to hopefully photograph these if there are any icebergs floating around up there. I'm really excited about that, and it might well be the last thing I do. Just finally, you've always said, and you always say, oh, it'll probably be the last time I do this, or I'm never going back in the dark room again. I've been in your dark room with you, which was an honour, and you said this will probably be one of the last times I'm in there, and it's just not true. It never is the last time. And and you talked about, you know, the fear of dying in, 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 in Uganda when you were in that prison yeah. and things. I wonder if, if you if you are still afraid of the end or whether you feel like you've had a really good, crammed, f you know, fulfilling life. Well, people like me, we suffer from greed. 
And I mean, I mean, the greed of life, really. I mean, it's not a crime, but it's an honest reflection of the way my mind works. My feet are terrible. My, I've got arthritis in my, I can't close my hand. My darkroom is a vile, awful place, which should have killed me. The chemistry alone in there is like smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. I've always said to people, I never smoke, I hate smoking, because I don't, I never have. And yet I'm trying to, you know, destroy my lungs with that chemistry in there. But you know something? It's like a drug to me. I, I say I, I went there last week for three days. I was absolutely wiped out physically. But when I'm in that dark room, it's a challenge. And I had one sheet of paper left the other day. And I, it was like gambling, which is another thing I detest. But I've gambled in my life. And I was in there. I had one sheet of paper. And I said, come on, come on. I made the best print I've made for years with that one sheet. And it's of the Somerset levels in winter. It's one of the, And it's never been shown, this picture, in 60,000 negatives, I'm going back and finding things now, which I never had the time to do before. So I haven't given up. I keep promising to give up. But I think by hanging on to that very fragile bough of a tree of life, it will snap eventually. Not very soon. Thank you very much, Don McCullen. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your books to live by. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Times Radio app.